again, uh, as Matt mentioned, I'm James Cooper. I'm an intern here. Um, my wife, Madeline, in the back with our son, Benjamin. Uh, and my pleasure to bring the word to you this morning, so please, let's start with a word of prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this time, Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is a hard and difficult book, uh, both to understand and also to grapple with. Pray that your spirit would be with us now, uh, that you preach to, us, to our hearts, even uh, as we see the words from the page. And pray that uh, you would bless us this morning in our coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so Ecclesiastes, it's one of those books in the Bible where when you first read it, you almost wonder how it made it in. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Especially, but, but in these first two chapters, um, Ecclesiastes just seems very, very bleak, very depressing, uh, very hopeless. It's so hopeless, in fact, that we can just kind of let it, let it hit our eyes and, and enter our ears and just kind of pass away, because there are so many encouraging things in the Bible. Why read this one? <laughs> Um, and, and maybe that's not you're here. Maybe you're here, and that's not you at all today. Maybe you're here, and um, and you've had a bad day. You've had a bad week, and so um, you're you're hearing the preacher fire on about the vanity of life and how he hates life. And you're like, yes, amen. <laughs> and maybe that's, that's how you feel. And I think realistically, that's how all of us do feel from time to time, which is why it's important to wrestle with a book like Ecclesiastes. Uh, in, in his book, uh, Either Or, uh, the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard um, provided this picture of the malaise, the, the sense of helplessness and despair in common culture in, in a person uh, when his or her outlook on life just can't deal with the complexities that he faces. This is what Kierkegaard's character says. Uh, he says, marry and you will regret it. Don't marry and you'll regret that. <laughs> marry or don't marry, you will regret it either way. Laugh at the world's foolishness, you will regret it. Weep over it, you'll regret that too. Laugh at the world's foolishness or weep over it, you will regret both. Yeah, this is him showing his, his colors here. Uh, believe a woman, you will regret it. 19th century. Believe or not, you will also regret it. Hang yourself, you will regret it. Do not hang yourself. You will regret that too. Hang yourself or don't hang yourself. You'll regret it either way. Whether you hang yourself or you do not hang yourself, you will regret both. This gentleman is the essence of all philosophy. So Kierkegaard, you know, he could just be taking a dig at philosophy here. Uh, sorry if you're offended, uh, philosophy majors. Uh, but, but I think what he's really getting at, what he's really trying to dig at, are philosophies of life that leave us feeling kind of stuck and unhappy. That's his opponent. The future is uncertain, 
So how can we possibly decide how to act? Added to this uh, list of bad experiences and the general fact that all of us are kind of risk averse, uh, and you have this, uh, this recipe for indecision, for regret, for despair, the kind of see. How should I live knowing that I can't really know what to expect? What if I end up wasting a good portion of my life pursuing something that in the end is not really worth it? These are, these are the kinds of questions that people wrestle with, and they're the kinds of questions that our preacher in Ecclesiastes is, is asking in this chapter, and really the whole book. The preacher here, and that's all he's called, uh, just the preacher, he's obviously a man of wealth, a man of some standing. Uh, traditionally, he was thought to be King Solomon. Uh, there's no reason he has to be King Solomon, but he's someone like that. Someone very wealthy, very connected, someone who could experience a lot in life. And in chapter 2, he sets out with all of his wisdom and all of his wealth to find out what life is all about. Wouldn't you want to know what life is all about? That's what he sets out to do. And um, he begins with this, uh, from this position of ignorance. He doesn't know what life is all about. He wonders. Now, we didn't read this part, but at uh, the beginning of chapter 2, the first thing he goes after is pleasure. Maybe pleasure will do the trick. Wine, women, pets, jewels, nature, music, other things. Maybe not concubines. But all, in the end, fail to satisfy your soul. No earthly pleasure to this preacher can stand up to the question, is this what law, life is all about? So that's why it's included right before the passage we just read. Is life all about pleasure? No. I had a professor at seminary suggest to me uh, that the millennial generation, okay, that's, that's my generation, or the selfie generation, uh, or the generation that gets picked on in certain illustrations. Uh, this professor said, our, our, our generation is, is not so much into consuming goods, stuff, so much as consuming experiences, they said. I think it's mostly fair. Okay? You talk to anyone between the ages of 21, 25 and 45, uh, you'll probably pick up on some cynicism about ostentatious displays of wealth. That's not something that millennials are really into. Uh, millennials will be the ones that use the phrase our consumerist culture in a kind of negative light. Uh, but on the other hand, right, you talk to, some, to that same person about a new restaurant or a new coffee shop or a new brewery or a new bakery that just opened up in the corner or a specialty grocery store or an Instagram page that features all of these things and more, right? It's a completely different conversation. Let's not forget about the, the technology that fuels a lot of this, right? Gadgets differ from other luxuries only in their justification. They're practical. Please don't hear me judging anyone's uh, particular purchases. I'm just saying that the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
including this sense of disappointment that the preacher felt at the end of his search for pleasure. He didn't keep anything away from himself, and, uh, and in verse 10 he says, in some sense the pleasure was its own reward. He got pleasure, but once it was done, that was kind of it. And so the feeling of spending all his energy and all his work and all his hope for a full life on things that in the end only left a memory, and that's true especially experiences, that was like gaining nothing at all. If pleasure doesn't get me satisfaction, he says, how else should I live? What am I going to do if I can't live for pleasure? Well, how about I try wisdom, he says. And that's where we pick up here. The preacher is going to try on wisdom in verses 12 through 17. And, and keep in mind here that uh, when the Bible talks about wisdom, this isn't just, uh, this isn't just intelligence, this isn't just uh, business savvy, this isn't just uh, good sense in general. Uh, biblical wisdom is roughly equivalent to what we might call godliness. It's this... Uh, this uh, skill, the skill in the art of godly living is kind of how one of my professors uh, put it. Walking with integrity the way that God would have us is what the preacher considers. And, and at this point, at this point is when we kind of expect a big finale. I know where this preacher is going. I tried pleasure. Tried working hard to get everything I wanted in life, and that kind of failed me. So uh, now I'm going to do. I'm going to reform myself. I'm going to do exactly what God says I should do. I'm going to live exactly the way that God tells me how to live, and then I'll get satisfaction. That would be a fitting conclusion to this chapter. That's what we might expect because it makes good rhetorical sense, right? We have the setup: pleasure doesn't work, so wisdom's going to work. Uh, but that's not. Not exactly where he goes. Even though that's what we would expect a very religious person to say. Even though that's what we would expect the Bible to say. That's not quite what he says. He's not totally wrong, though. Um, but we're not totally wrong in thinking that, though. The book of Proverbs, uh, which is another wisdom book, has a very strong message um, that when we walk in God's ways things generally turn out better. And um, if you study Proverbs, it's kind of the, the message, right? It's walk in God's ways, and you will find blessing. Uh, but here, here's something else happens. Uh, it doesn't always work that way. So something breaks down. Notice in verse 14 that the preacher makes a subtle reference to death. He says, uh, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to them both. And, and you can't really be thinking of anything else except for death. It's the one event that happens to all of us, whether we follow God's will or not. Uh, for the preacher, death is the guarantee that all of our efforts whether pleasure-seeking or wisdom-seeking, in the end, will end. And so will our memory. There's a big emphasis on memory here. 
And one of the major themes in the ancient world, uh, present in all kinds of ancient literature, not just the Bible, is this problem of being remembered, of leaving a legacy. It was a big preoccupation in the ancient world. That's why kings would build statues of themselves, these big monuments of their reigns. It's why poets sing songs about heroes and eras. It's why we keep pictures around of, of grandparents and our parents and hope that our children keep pictures and stories around of us, too. But the thing is that nobody really remembers those ancient kings and heroes. Not, not really. Just bits and pieces and legends. Nobody really knows what Ramses II looked like. I mean, maybe a little bit. You see a statue of him. You don't really feel him. You don't really know what he sounds like. You don't know whether Ramses II was fun at parties. You don't really know if <laughs> he had a nice smile. He saw a chariot race. Some, uh, some, some biographers, right, are better than others. You know, this giant volume of Lincoln's biography, really famous, uh, by Secretary Hayes. Uh, but at the same time, it leaves so much out. So much out. And, uh, and that's a little disquieting because you and I are no Abraham. History will forget us when we're gone. And, and the preacher thinks about this, how history's going to forget him and all that he's done. And the absurdity of it all makes him wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth living for God when death will wipe me and the memory of me and the memory of those who remember me from the earth? After all, living a godly life is not very easy. It requires a lot of self-denial, a lot of self-control, a lot of self-sacrifice, a lot of things we don't really want to do sometimes, and temptations abound. Even if pleasure won't satisfy, I'm going to die anyway. Quest for satisfaction, over. Is it worth it? So he's asking himself. Um, and this paints a pretty bleak picture. If you're not sad yet, um, and you can see you can see why. Uh, in verse 17, uh, the preacher has this this kind of shocking statement. He says, "So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving." You might be asking yourself, I thought this man was godly. I thought this man was a prophet. So why does he sound so much like me? My weaker moment. Some of the times in life that I've hated life most um, have been during major life transitions. Two I can call uh, let me get to mine right off the top of my head, and one we're kind of going right through right now. But uh, the worst life transition I can think of uh, that I hated life the most 
was that transition from high school to college. So any seniors in the room, look out. <laughs> that is, could be bad, maybe. Uh, I, I distinctly remember being 18 years old, okay, on my own for the first time uh, in a city far, far away. My dorm was on the, the ninth floor, and I remember being by myself in my dorm room. I don't even remember I was supposed to be by myself, but I was by myself in my dorm room, uh, looking out of my ninth floor window, and from up there I could see the whole University of Minnesota campus, and I've even been there, it's pretty big. Uh, and then behind it is the city. And so I'm, I'm there by myself, staring out on the city, and I remember this overwhelming feeling of emptiness. It was like, uh, it was like death, maybe. I was 18. I'm a little dramatic. But the reason I felt that way, the reason I felt that way is, is because at the time, I was wondering to myself, what was going to happen to my past life? Was it over? I didn't think about this at the time, but another natural question would have been, was it worth it? Did it matter who I was kind to or unkind to in high school? Did it matter that I worked harder than maybe I even needed to? Did it matter that I had spent two years invested in a church that now I was no longer a part of? Would any of my friends from high school remember me in 10 years? Uh, the answer turned out to be no. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know, I don't call them. Uh, so not literally, of course, they probably remember me, but, uh, but practically speaking, that season of life for me was over, and a new one began. Uh, and no one, really, no one really talked about it, it just kind of passed. And all of us experience these kinds of things, right? These, these little deaths that make us question whether it all matters in the end. It, it kills the spirit. It makes us indifferent towards God. That's what it did for me. Maybe we don't live for pleasure because we're, we're too cynical for that. But we don't really live for God either. And, and you can substitute God for any number of higher causes that seem futile. We just kind of, kind of exist. We're, we're like Kierkegaard's philosopher, or uh, Marcus Aurelius struggling in the morning. And Marcus Aurelius, uh, yeah, it's a classical school. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor, and, uh, and it's what he, he writes in his Meditations, his, his famous work about the experience of getting out of bed in the morning. Yeah. He wrote about getting out of bed in the morning. Um, like with most men, right, this could be a very trying experience sometimes. So, uh, now as far as I can tell, Marcus Aurelius, he wasn't, he wasn't going through this existential crisis. He was just, he was just a little lazy. Um, and he writes about, uh, about this experience being lazy in bed. Okay. Uh, groggy indecision and half-hearted conviction um, that maybe he should do the right thing. But maybe it wasn't worth it. These are the thoughts that go through the mind at five in the morning. 
Well, Marcus had this advice for himself. He essentially appealed to his duty. This is what he says to himself. This is a paraphrase, but barely. Uh, what is wrong with you, Marcus? Aren't you so privileged? You actually get to choose to hit snooze in the morning. Don't you know that there are shopkeepers and road crews out there who get up even earlier than you do and don't complain? And you, an emperor, you run a country. You can't even be bothered to get out of bed. Maybe some of us really do need that advice from time to time. Um, some days. Uh, especially for that particular struggle. Uh, but the appeal to duty is uh, the appeal to duty is a popular response. Both in Christian circles and increasingly among non-Christians, especially uh, younger men who are kind of disillusioned about what modern culture has to offer them. This sort of, uh, just do it. Just do it. But the, uh, the call to duty, it rings a little bit hollow at the graves. There is, in fact, no room in a duty-bound system for mourning, for weeping, for hating life. But that's exactly where the, the preacher goes with this. It seems like uh, that's what we're meant to do. This is meant to be instructive. And in fact, what the preacher says it rings true to what many of us experience in the low points of life. If we're honest with ourselves when we go through them, someone were just to say, just do it. life. Uh, and I just want to encourage you that if you're here and you struggle to fully experience uh, the awfulness of life, that if the way you, you lean into life goes beyond uh, optimism and you're actually afraid to admit when things are wrong and somehow you think uh, weeping and mourning and moaning are somehow unmanly or ungodly, uh, the preacher and the psalmist here are your example of godly men who sometimes hated life, and they said so. Even though they didn't hate God, okay, uh, that's, that's an important distinction. Well, some of you maybe do, maybe do hate God uh, for what has happened or is happening to you. And that's not what the preacher is saying. The preacher is just saying, I hate life. And I've decided, uh, I've decided somewhat out of mercy here to, to skip through uh, verses 18 to 23. It's, it's just more, more heavy. Uh, joke aside, but it's, uh, it's kind of an elaboration on the same theme. The preachers sort of ask the question, what is the point of building a future for children who might disappoint you can see why I might have skipped that. <laughs> There's not much more I want to say about that other than good point, right? Um, verse 24, however, it marks this kind of major transition. Um, you look at verse 24, uh, it's sort of the payoff. Here's the payoff. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave. Oh, sorry. Uh, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find his enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So that's kind of the payoff. Uh, but when you first read it, it seems a little, uh, a little disappointing, maybe. Um, the verses don't seem to fit. 
they seem like an anticlimax, right? We've got all this doom and gloom, and now we're sort of in the ordinary eating and drinking world again. Um, and I think to the extent, to the extent that we feel uh, some disappointment about this, some uh, underwhelmed feeling about this, uh, that's the extent to which you and I, and I, I do feel uncomfortable about this sometimes, that's the extent to which you and I have a different view of life and death from this preacher. There's a way in which um, this preacher's life parallels um, the lives of human beings after Eden. So think with, with me back, if you will, all the way back to Genesis. Opening chapters of Genesis. What it would have been like for Adam and Eve. What was their day like? Well, it's pretty simple. Prayer, work, rest. Prayer, work, rest. Prayer, work, rest. Prayer, work, rest. Over, 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 over again. And it was beautiful. Uh, we don't think it was beautiful. We paradise lost. Maybe. Um, and day after day, they would enjoy the fruit of their labors. Day after day, they would enjoy the beauty of the created world. Day after day, they would enjoy the intimate presence of God in all things, even as they prayed, worked, and rested. Season after season gave way to season. But time, time was not an enemy. Time was a friend. Time brought order. Time brought change. Time brought uh, interest. Time brought new and exciting seasons of life, but death and decay were not something that time brought. Pleasure was pleasurable. It was a gift rather than a master. And it pointed them to the goodness of a God who walked in the garden as a friend. That's what it was like for Adam and Eve. That's what it would have been like for us, but not for the fall. A change was a part of, of the old world, but death was not. Futility was not. Sin was not. Emptiness was not. Melancholy longing for something more was not. All of these things are foreign to the old world of Adam and Eve, but they fit right at home in arms. And that is why the preacher hates life under the sun. To be under the sun means to be in a world that was never meant to be. Don't be afraid of it. But at the same time, don't despair either. I think, I think we can begin to see, uh, with that picture of what the world was like and what it's become, I think we can begin to see how these last few verses, uh, they fit into the bigger story that the preacher is telling. Verses 24 through 28, they're kind of a, a reenactment in some small way of that original Edenic life that all of us long for, even though we can't fully articulate it. Uh, to toil in the presence of God is to work hard. To toil. Um, but then to enjoy the pleasures of life while we have them. It's, it's to lean into the relationships, into the communities, into the commitments that we have while we have them. Where we are. Uh, it is to lean into the present unburdened by the terrible things 
that might very well happen to us, or even unburdened by the good things that may not happen to us. Because we're ultimately satisfied by things not in this world. Because we were never meant to be satisfied by this world. And we're especially not meant to be satisfied in a fallen world. And that might be a little disappointing, uh, a little bit of a, an anticlimax to all this, uh, but it's ultimately freeing. To toil in the presence of God is to give up control and experience God, life as God has given to it, it to us and not as we wish it to be. It's to, to really mourn in times of mourning, to really rejoice in times of rejoicing. It's to, to view life as a gift rather than a, as, a, as this never-ending quest for satisfaction. Uh, so one of the things that I read uh, lately, as I, was, I read lately as I was preparing for this sermon, um, so I, I teach at a school where, where we, really, we read a lot of Charlotte Mason, who is kind of, uh, she was this uh, 19th century educational philosopher, she was like the Mary Poppins of the time, and uh, she, she, she writes a lot about children, and she says, and when she's reflecting on children, she writes about the, uh, to, to resist the propensity as a parent, in my school only one, to, um, to always be thinking about the next stage. And as I was reading this, I was, I was just thinking about it. Benjamin's, you know, a little over a one year old now, and I, I just think about the things that I worry about. You know, when is, when is he going to start walking? Where is he going to go to school? You know, um, when is he going to make a profession of faith? You know, when, where is he going to go to college? That's a really long time from now. You know, is he, is he going to grow up? You know, and is he going to... Is he going to remember his old man? And these kinds of things. And I'm not even old. These are the things I worry about. And I'm reading Charlotte Mason. I'm thinking, you know, what? I've been thinking about this for 20 minutes and I haven't looked at my son once. Something's wrong. And, uh, and that's a little bit about, that's, that's a little bit, I think, what toiling in the presence of God is all about. It's about enjoying the lot of life that God has given you. And letting him take care of you. It's, it's a little scary. The passage ends on a note that sounds a bit like judgment. And it kind of is. Uh, because after all, death is a result of sin. And death still comes. And for those who don't know God, death really is the end. The godly experience a kind of triumph. God's justice prevails. That's a little scary, but this ending, it serves as kind of a guarantee. Uh, if we're going to give up control, how do we know we can trust God? I can delay gratification for a long time if I know it's coming. And for the preacher, it was the promises given to Abraham. And it was this assurance that in the end, God and his people would triumph over sin, death, and their enemies. But for us, for us, it is all of these things. And also, the triumph we already have experienced over death in Christ. We know the end of the story. We know that death doesn't end, doesn't win in the end. We know that one day Christ will return in judgment to make all things new. And all of the mourning that we feel will be forgotten. 
and all the rejoicing we have will be multiplied. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, we are satisfied. And in Christ, we are truly free to live life under the sun. Please pray with Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this time in Ecclesiastes. And we pray uh, that as we, we go out this week, that you would help us to live lives under the sun, deeply and fully in your presence, that we would toil hard to love our neighbors, we would toil hard to give good gifts to our children, we would toil hard to be witnesses for you in a fallen and broken world that desperately needs your presence. We pray that you would help us to look towards the future, to look expectantly and hopefully towards the time when your son will come again to just living in the dead and to deliver us into the new heavens and new earth that you are creating for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.